2: Welcome to the New Books Network.
3: Welcome to uh, this new episode of the New Books Network. My name is Victor Monin, and today I'm welcoming Dr. Anne-Christine Duhaime, uh, senior pediatric uh, neurosurgeon at Massachusetts uh, General Hospital and professor of neurosurgery at Harvard Medical School. We'll be discussing today her latest book, uh, Minding the Climate, How Neuroscience can help us uh, can help solve our environmental crisis. Doctors, thank you so much uh, for coming here today and for having accepted my invitation to discuss your book. And I'd like to start by maybe asking you how how come there is such an intersection between neuroscience and environmental sciences? I felt uh, what draw me to your book was this interesting intersection that you are exploring, and that. Well, for two fields that seem incredibly separate, I would say, at first glance, we don't think of there being an intersection between neuroscience and environmental sciences. Could you maybe, maybe tell us a little bit more about how this idea of this book came about and what you were um, trying to achieve with it?
0: Sure. Well, thanks for that question. It's a it's a good place to start because just like you, many people who hear about this are like, how are those things related? I don't see them related at all. But as I mentioned in, in talking about this, no matter what you do, you think about that thing all the time. So if you're a chef, you think about food. If you're an artist, you think about you know, composition. If you are a plumber, you think about plumbing. So each of us, whatever we're immersed in, uh, it colors our view of everything else. And as you mentioned, I'm a neurosurgeon. And when you are a neurosurgeon, it's a pretty intense career choice. Uh, You are immersed in the brain all the time. It's what you think about during your training and during your career. Everything that you see is viewed through your knowledge and perspective of how the brain operates. And neurosurgeons have a particular insight into this, not that other fields don't, but the one that we have is people go from functioning to not functioning in a heartbeat. And so we see the brain when parts of it don't work or when there are uh, issues with how it functions and then we can watch it recover. So this mindset of watching the brain in action with uh, acute changes Uh, gives us a point of view that everything is about the brain. Everything we do, everything we are, everything we think, that's not to, we can talk about this separately, it's not to undercut other views of humanity, spiritual views, for example, but from the neurosurgical point of view, the decisions we make, the priorities we choose, our actions, our hopes, our aspirations can be explained through or viewed through the lens of the brain. So, the environmental crisis, big, big problem. I think the biggest one we're facing. So as someone who is brain oriented, I viewed that problem through the lens of the brain. And they seem perfectly logically connected to me because the reason that we have the climate crisis is an offshoot of the way we have behaved as a species and I don't mean behave like good and bad, naughty and nice. I mean the behavioral choices we have made. And those can be explained by an understanding of how the brain is designed to operate the way it does. So I don't think it's so far-fetched that they're linked, but I think the answer to your question is why did I link them? It's because I have that particular point of view and, um, and I really care about climate change. So they were naturally linked in, in my own um, uh, way of looking at the world.
3: I see. Could you like maybe give us a sense of is this uh, a very um, is is this a topic an, an intersection that's been uh, maybe uh, that you've discussed with some of your colleagues uh, in uh, neuroscience or neurosurgery as well? Or um, can you give us a sense maybe of is there a, a community of uh, researchers that is uh, interested in that intersection, or are we really at the at the forefront of something here?
0: Sure. I think that there is a community of people who are interested in the intersection of behavior and behavior change and climate change and environmental degradation. Uh, and those people largely come from the field of psychology, but there is also um, a-, a collection of people who are people in other aspects of human study that have to do with other um other parts of behavior, for example, communication and semantics is one area, um, economic behavior and economic choice, neuroeconomics, behavioral economics, that's another thing. Those folks typically have worked in concert with psychologists to try to understand why do we make some of the choices that we make? What is it about the way the brain seems to be predisposed? What is a little bit new is the idea of using true neuroscience in this Area. And I, I, this is not totally new to me. There are people who have, for example, neuroeconomics researchers and psychologists have done things like look at uh, the brain while it's making decisions in a brain scanner that looks at which parts are involved, for example. And those include economic decisions or other decisions having to do with relevance to our environmental choices. But what I wanted to do was go back to the basics of how is the brain designed? How does it work at the level of cells, molecules, genes? How is it designed? Because it's not a thing that wasn't influenced by events that happened long before this crisis started. And it was designed under the tutelage of evolutionary pressure. And it does certain things in certain ways because of those pressures. And so when you look at it from that point of view, the question is, how is the brain designed? How did we get into this mess? Why do we have so much trouble getting out of the mess? And what elements are there about brain design that might be hopeful for change? That is, what can we learn about the way that the brain can change Um, And and under what conditions it changes since our behavior seems to have gotten us into this fix in the first place.
3: I I really love the book for one specific reason to me is because I think it echoes so many of these um, daily experiences of us knowing that maybe a certain behavior would be beneficial for a a larger goal, right, such as uh, uh, answering this environmental crisis. But at the same time, the difficulty of enacting on this idea, or this knowledge, and also the difficulty of just communicating to someone else the, uh, the benefits of such action. And I think, to me, I, I really love the book because it, it's not just about uh, teaching some principles of neuroscience and how it can apply to environmental crisis, which seems like a very heavy, uh, a very tough subject to go into. But it also really just provides just a clear perspective on just these very daily experiences. And I think maybe one way to dive deeper into the content of your book and the arguments it's making would be to clarify what I thought to me was at least a new concept to me. And I think uh, one concept that, you know, um, very useful throughout the book is the notion of reward system. Uh, And uh, you, you take a good good amount of time in the book to explain uh, its, its history, its evolution, uh, but also the plasticity of this reward system um, and its limitations as well. So could you maybe give us a sense of what that concept or notion is uh, and how learning about it might help us, um, well, change our behaviors, change our behaviors for the better uh, and, and in answering this environmental crisis?
0: Sure. I think that one of the things that I found um, sort of frustrating – when I started down this path was the concept that many people have in their heads, that we are hardwired or that we have a human nature that is fixed. And therefore it's hopeless. We can't change. Humans are just going to be this way. And we are this way because that's the way we are. And being in the field of neuroscience, I know that's not true. The brain is the way it is, because as we said, it evolved a certain way. And what is this about this reward system business? Many people have the idea that the reward system, it's dopamine and you know, you you, you get something rewarding and you get this surge of dopamine. There's a lot in the lay literature about this, but it's a little bit oversimplified as most things are. Um, and so I wanted to find out Uh, through reading. I didn't do original research for this book. It was all through reading other people's work, and some of the work that I and some of my colleagues did entered into it. But the basic idea that I wanted to pursue about um, the reward system was, where did it come from? Why is it the way it is? How malleable might it be? And it turns out that when you look back to the very beginning, and you ask, how did organisms decide what to do when given a choice. And I went all the way back to single cell organisms. How does a bacteria know to move towards sugar and to move away from a toxin like ammonia? How does it do that? And the way it does it is the same principles that work through throughout evolution, including in our own brains, to how we function at a basic level. This is not magic. This is not a magic wand that somebody waves. This is biology. And biology is designed the way it is, and I don't mean designed as though there's an external designer, you can argue that point, but is designed through the process of evolution um, to allow for maximal survival. That's the basic underlying principle. So how does a bacteria do it? A bacteria does it because on the cell surface of a bacteria, it turns out that some bacteria, through the principles of evolution and new things happening and mutations happening. Some bacteria developed certain chemicals on the surface of their cells that had the physical property that when they encountered other chemicals in the external environment, it made them change shape. Well, when they changed shape, it's almost like you know the old Rube Goldberg machines where uh, a, a sliding ball coming down a Tunnel hits something else, and that affects something else, and that affects something else, until you get this complicated mechanistic change. And in this case, the, these sensors, so called sensor molecules, we call them sensors because that's how they behave, but before they were sensors, they were just molecules. And they change shape when they encounter something, and that sets a bunch of physical processes in motion that in the bacteria allow something to move that propels the bacteria towards the sugar. And and likewise, it had to develop other things that propelled it in the opposite direction away from um, things like ammonia. Well, that's the very beginning. That bacteria doesn't have a brain, but it can, quote unquote, decide to go this way instead of that way and get away from here and go towards that. Well, if you look at how this happened over evolutionary time, we got to multicellular organisms and then you get to mammals And in the book, I talk about a timeline that I needed to construct for myself to make myself understand it. The brain um, evolved over over literally billions of years, if you go all the way back to the basic building blocks. And of course, um, the the planet is about 4.5 billion years old. Life, if you imagine a timeline where you're walking from the start of the earth, and we imagine a map of the United States, and the earth begins in San Francisco. My students came up with this when we were working on a thought exercise to try to put this together. And if the present time is the center of Times Square, you're going to walk across the United States map at Google Map pace, which is a trip that would take you 40 days. So the earth begins in San Francisco. You start to get single cell life in about a uh, Uh, Salt Lake City, and you start to get multicellular life in about Iowa City. You don't get to mammals until you're in Pennsylvania. You don't get to primates until you're in New Jersey. You don't get to humans until you're right outside Times Square. And you don't get to our climate crisis, the so-called Anthropocene, until your big toe hits the last step. And so... Our brains evolved over all that time, not just for mammals. Mammals were built on earlier organisms in evolutionary history. So the principles that make us work the way we do go way, way, way back. And the pressures under which those changes happened to select certain ways of working happened way before this current time, like so far before that it's almost insignificant. And that's the way we're designed to work. And so... What I was interested in was um, how about this reward system, which plays a big role in our decision making. Well, the reward system started way back, even before we were mammals, uh, uh, in helping solve two tasks. One was Deciding what was important and the other was teaching you the circumstances under which something that was important for survival occurred So that you would be likely to repeat the behavior that led to that important thing the next time you encountered those circumstances, so it's for uh, putting a putting a value on behavior and it's for teaching you the things that are important to know to repeat the behavior Um, When it's beneficial, that's what it was designed for. It was not designed to reward you like a trip to Acapulco And it's all nice. It's that's not what the reward system is all about. It's to teach you how to survive and When you think of it from that point of view um, What the reward system does in daily life including now is it helps you make decisions so the decisions that we make including the decisions that are relevant to the creation of our problem with environment and climate and also our decisions for the actions we have to take uh, to mitigate the problem and even to adapt to the problem, these decisions are made with equipment that was formed so far before this current crisis that we simply did not develop the equipment. Now you have really good equipment for learning that when you step on a Lego in the dark and it really hurts, next time you're in the dark, in your living room where the kids left the Legos behind, you're going to be extra careful. You you are very well designed to learn that. There are many things you are very well designed to learn. You are not very well designed to learn about the kind of behaviors that will help our environment just because there's a crisis that you heard about through some stranger on television or whatever. Um, This is not the way your brain had to learn new behavior changes in the past. It's not the right context, it's not the right schedule of reward, it's not the right other components that make things rewarding that we can talk about like agency and social reward. Um, It's not the same as having a great meal, it's not the same as getting uh, uh, a goal in a soccer match, it's not the same as getting a great feedback immediately after you give a presentation at work. None of those Rewards are anything like what you need to solve this problem. It's just a bad match because of evolutionary design.
3: If I were to uh, maybe try to to suggest to you how I understood this uh, this um, this development of yours is, it's as if um, really our our brains weren't able to even see that there is a choice in the first place. Right, because in your in, in your in, in your uh, in your very in the very beginning of your narrative with uh, you know the first uh, um, cells organisms and uh, looking at either sugar or a toxin and they have to make that that choice quote unquote. Uh, it's as if we are not designed at this point in the evolutionary stage. Uh, we're not designed to even see a choice between making. Uh, a decision that would benefit us right now or making a decision that would benefit us long-term in uh, helping solve the uh, environmental crisis? Am I am I understanding you correctly?
0: That's one element. The element of immediate reward versus long-term reward When we stack those two together, immediate reward is a much more powerful reward. That's the concept of what's called discounting. So something you're going to get right now, many people have heard of the kids with the marshmallows. It's a famous experiment where they put kids in a room with marshmallows in front of them. They say "You'll you'll get twice as many marshmallows if you wait, and then they leave the room and they secretly you know videotape the kid and it's this issue of you know delayed gratification this is hard for people it's hard for kids and it's hard for why it's not because we're evil or bad i mean one of the whole ideas behind this book is to not judge people we're not saying people are stupid people are uh short-sighted people are uh selfish We're, we're, we're getting rid of those terms those are value judgments what we're saying what i'm trying to say in this book is what is it about the way we are that makes this difficult for us. So you've touched on one, the immediate versus the long-term. We are we are better able, we, we can have delayed gratification, otherwise we couldn't have survived as a species, but the immediate is a stronger reward in general. However, that's not the only thing. The other thing you touched on was the perception. So carbon dioxide, which is our big problem, has gone up dramatically even in my lifetime, but I can't see it. I can only know about it third hand through indirect sources and i can't perceive it well if during evolution carbon dioxide had been toxic in some short term way we would have been selected for being able to perceive it but it was never an issue for us because during all of previous history the carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere while they varied they never varied to the to they never went up to the range that we're seeing now by by a long shot and so we did not need to perceive it. Not only did we not need to perceive it because it didn't vary as much as it varied now, but it's also because it's not immediately directly toxic to us at the levels that it is. This is a planetary problem. This is an indirect thing. And the example I use in the book is I'm in medicine. So for me, one analogy is like it's like you find a great drug, a new drug that cures a disease or really takes care of a disease. And that new drug was fossil fuel and fossil fuel was a wonderful thing. It took care of, you know, it reduced work, it could do things that we couldn't do before, it could advance technology, it was great. But it's like if you had a new drug for a disease and you found out after you'd been using it for a while that there was some side effect. But in this case, the side effect doesn't affect the people using it. The side effect affects somebody somewhere else far away that you don't see and that's sort of how climate change is. Climate change, while it does affect us in our communities now, floods and all sorts of things, heat waves, uh, forest fires, it is affecting first and foremost, uh, historically and magnitude wise, people away from the people who are the biggest consumers and that's us here in the United States and some other places in the world. So the side effect of this miraculous drug, we don't see it, we can't perceive it. We can't perceive it in our senses and we can't even perceive the effects. And even when we perceive the effects, the effects are so indirect and new to us that they don't set off alarm bells. We did not evolve the alarm bells that we did if you step on a Lego or put your hand in a fire or are about to fall into the water. All of those, we 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 understand those viscerally. Climate change is a much harder challenge for us to perceive, understand, and act on.
3: Well... So well, thank you so much for for this clarification, and I think that uh, your your book touches also on a on, on a on a theme or a, a concept that's uh, that's been uh, widely um, co- commented on, which is biophilia. And it seems like at first, a biophilia would be uh, a sort of an answer to the idea that well, our brain is—is is our brain equipped or not really equipped uh, to uh, answer the the environment, my, my environmental crisis? Sorry about that. Um, in the sense that biophilia refers to this idea that as humans, we've evolved to draw satisfaction with uh, close interactions with uh, nature. Um, so. So it seems like in this case, if we, are, if we are indeed wired to get gratification from nature, then uh, the environmental crisis and us acting on it shouldn't be such a challenge. Uh, but of course, your, your book, uh, I think, explores the limits of that concept. Could you, so could you tell us maybe how you positioned yourself uh, in regards to biophilia and how does your book maybe looks beyond uh, that concept?
0: Sure. Biophilia is a hypothesis. Of course, it's a really tough thing to prove, and the evidence that people who, um, who promulgate the idea, uh, which I happen to think has some validity, uh, use examples of um, things like preference for landscape, that lots of people prefer similar landscapes, so this must be something genetic or hereditary. Uh, and they also use the idea of biophobia as evidence, that is, Most people are afraid of snakes and spiders, even if they've never seen snakes and spiders. So this must be something that is in our genetic inheritance. Um, And therefore, as you suggest, you would think, well, gee, if we really love nature and we're sort of um, evolutionarily adapted to loving nature, why can't we love it enough to save it? And there's lots of reasons for that. Uh, One, it isn't entirely clear that everybody has this love of nature, the same as everybody else, just like every other trait. And there are people that really, really care about nature. There are some people that are like, yeah, it's nice if I go on vacation, I have pretty views, that's fine, but I don't need it every day. And if you think about evolution, we, one can imagine, I don't, there's no way to prove this, but one can imagine that humans, early humans, when our brains were being formed, and certainly before our brains were human, that is in the scaffolding of our brains that predates humans, um, you can imagine there wouldn't have been a whole lot of selective pressure to love nature because nature was everywhere. We didn't need to develop something like you do if you're a fish and you're out of water. I got to get back in that water or I'm going to die. I mean, you were always in nature. There wasn't any separation in prehistory between organisms in nature they were nature. In fact the concept of separation from nature would not have made any sense to to early humans or to the creatures from whom we evolved our nervous system components. And so while we there is evidence that nature is beneficial to us, in other words, exposure to nature helps cognition in some studies, it helps child development, it helps general health, it helps uh, mood. Um, it decreases violence and if you put green spaces into cities. So there, there is evidence uh, from a variety of fields that nature is beneficial. However, the reward you get from nature is not the same as that immediate, powerful, dopaminergic type reward that you get from acquisition and consumption. And it's, it's a softer, kind of more general reward. I mean, compare, just in your own experience whatever your sport or competition is getting a getting a goal in the you know soccer game big match compared to I'm going for a walk in the woods the walk in the woods is really nice but it's a different qualitatively and probably quantitatively different thing so if nature meant immediate survival to us we might have a different attitude but this is more like a gift you give yourself than something that is built into your every minute decision making and prioritization. It's something you do on Saturdays. It's something you do when you have time off. It's not something you need for minute to minute survival. And therefore I think it it's simply, and recognizing that uh, helps to understand why we can't just turn on biophilia to help us. In fact, I think it does play a role. I mean, many people who become environmentalists do so uh, because they have lost some beautiful space that they really cared about or because they just happen to have that predisposition. But it's one kind of predisposition, and it doesn't unfortunately stack up to all the other behavioral choices that we make for many other reasons.
2: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
3: I think what your your answer touches upon an, another feature of the book that um, I found particularly interesting. Uh, you just mentioned this idea. Well, nature was always around uh, us, at least uh, us in the sense of uh, us evolving to become humans, and it's only just very recently, actually, in recent history, you could think of you know maybe the Industrial Revolution, the eighteen hundreds, and so that nature. Uh, kind of became this uh, outside thing uh, that we can uh, identify as nature uh, in opposition to the city, for example. Uh, so uh, I think to me, it's, it, it brings forward uh, this feature of your book uh, that the study of the brain, and this is something that really I, I never thought of, and I'm so grateful for having read the book, is it's that the study of the brain is fundamentally an historical study. Uh, just looking at the three parts of your book, um, the three main parts are titled uh, Neural Origins, and then the second one is the 21st century brain, and then the last one, Changing the Brain. There's this clear uh, temporal uh, line that you're drawing, um, and, and you're getting us, you taking the reader through that e- evolutionary journey, as you mentioned at the very beginning, uh, up until the recent history and the Anthropocene. So uh, my my question here is that what are the challenges really in in studying through this vast scale of time? Right, you are both looking at the long term history of the brain, and you're also studying its ongoing uh, slash future changes. I feel like these these two kinds of study require very different kinds of methodologies. And then how do you even compile these uh, these data? How do you what's the methodology to even compare them here?
0: Good question. It's variable because it depends on what the questions are that you're asking, what discipline uh, is required to give that information. And one of the challenges of pulling this book together was so many fields are involved, right? I had to uh, read basic science, which is not so difficult for me, but hard for a reader. And I try to make it as uh, colorful and and simple as the as I can for some of the main and important concepts in this in this journey that I've taken. But I had to learn about, uh, you know, um, game theory and how people use that for neuroeconomic decisions. And I had to learn about um, what changes in modern life have potentially accelerated consumption. Because the basic problem and the basic... Uh, cause of climate change is our consumption. Now, it's important to recognize this does not necessarily mean consumption at the level of an individual person. Uh, It it can be parsed that way. Um, I mean, everything that you do ultimately comes down to a per capita kind of consumption. Uh, But there are things that have changed in the way we live very, very recently in evolutionary history that go beyond Um, changes that happened because of evolutionary changes in how our brains operated. That is, we've had the same equipment neurally for, you know, 100,000, 150,000 years, but our behavior has changed very rapidly. Now, this is not because of a change in brain evolution. This is because of a change in our lives. One of the interesting things I learned that was new to me is that people who study evolutionary biology have... um, Accepted the fact that because humans had the ability, um, particularly—it's not saying no other animal does—but because we had a particular ability to change our own environments, and here I'm not talking about environment like, sorry, uh, like the big, uh, uh, big question of the environment, our, our, you know, atmosphere and so forth. I'm talking about our immediate environments because humans could change. their lifestyles and the way they lived, their brains had to co-evolve to take advantage of the changes that their societal and social uh, progress made. So some of the things that potentially accelerated things like tool use and language happened in part because they were selected for by the changes in the lives that the people themselves were living. This sort of acceleration of change was a a new concept to me and very interesting. But likewise, in the 21st century, what do we have that we didn't have before? We have, I think, first and foremost, and an explanation for many things in our culture around the world that is difficult right now, is we have a rapid acceleration in the very pace of change. That is, things are changing faster and faster. So what's different between when you're born and when you hit youth and middle age and older age, the new things that come on, uh, come into focus are faster and faster. And there is a theory that people have difficulty... Uh, coping with that fast a pace of change and that human brains are designed to for a certain pace of change. We're very adaptable. You can change your priorities if someone in your family dies, if someone is born, if your leadership changes, if you have to move. We're pretty good at this, but the pace of change which follows the pace of science and technology which accelerates because it's synergistic and cultural change follows that. The pace of change now is so fast that people have a tendency, some think, and I agree with this, to try to revert to something that feels solid. And by solid, I mean familiar and and changing more slowly. So many of the cultural shifts towards fundamentalism in all its directions, that it can be religious fundamentalism, it can be political fundamentalism, it can It can be all kinds of things where things stay the same and you know the rules and you understand what's going to happen. And then when you add climate change into the mix of the rapid change and pace of uncertainty, and climate change is the very earth and the rules that control the earth. It is so unsettling that some people theorize that we become uh, addicted to getting our rewards in different ways, which are largely consumptive. That is, you buy stuff or you go online or you do this or you do that. And these these things integrate with the acceleration of the problem of climate change. So this is a somewhat indirect way to answer your question of how do you study all this? Well, each category is a little bit different. There's brain evolution, there's brain function, there's the evolution of the reward system. It's how does it actually work? How have people studied that? But when we look at the Anthropocene and current change, the the people that study that tend to be sociologists and um, policymakers and government people and um, people who study the science of communications and behavior change. They are people in the clinical world who study behavior change in tough problems like addiction or like um video game addiction or shopping addiction. These things are relevant because they show how the brain works, what kind of predispositions it may have, and how when it's not pathologic but it's widespread because of the changes in the way we live, um, at a slightly lower level we can all be potentially over-consuming And it's not just as our role as individual people, it's as the decisions we make as leaders of companies or institutions or um, education in all of these fields, policymakers, politicians. We all make our decisions with the same equipment and with some of the same predispositions, but there is a lot of malleability based on the input that we constantly get from the outside world.
3: So so we've talked a lot about uh, what I would say is maybe the – the, the problem we, we, are, we, are, we are faced with, right? This uh, long uh, evolutionary journey that uh, from which we inherit basically our brain and its function and its uh, way of getting rewards and making choices. Uh, and I think uh, maybe just to summarize all this, I'd like just to, to quote your, your book, if, if I may, because I thought there was a particular uh, um, uh, moment in the book that to me summarized the, your general diagnosis of the situation Uh, You write that our brains are amazing, fine-tuned, capable, adaptable to handle the incredible task of human life in its infinite variety and with its infinite day-to-day challenges. But there is a mismatch between the pace of evolution of this extraordinary, able, pulsating, three-pound bundle of sparks uh, and what we need to uh, meet the challenge of this extraordinary, rapid age of the Anthropocene. So, uh... Now that we've established a problem this mismatch as you as you name it um, what are the strategies we can put in place uh, to continue the fine-tuning of the brain uh, in a way that would address uh, this mismatch and uh, the environmental crisis
0: yeah that of course is the is the crux of the matter isn't it and so I think uh, that was my question like can we change and I remember when I've talked about this concept with People who are not in the neuroscience, they've said things like, well, what are you going to do, put deep brain stimulators in and like change everyone's behavior, give them hallucinogenics or something? No, 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 that's not what we're talking about. I think it's going to come from um, two basic areas. The first, there is already a, a large contingent of the public who worry about climate change. In fact, it's a priority. And I know that there are different, because there are different cultures, different uh, people have different sources of information and so forth, but for example, the Europeans by and large are ahead of us in the United States in terms of their awareness and and ability and willingness to make changes that are pro-environmental. But the crux of the conclusion of sort of, you know, part one and part two of the book is that the reason that we have trouble making these changes is i mean the underlying reason is you know our brains haven't caught up with this but the, but but because of that the kind of behavior changes that we need to make are simply not very rewarding the reward system evolved when we had different needs and there is no way evolution at this point with this extraordinarily compressed time frame we have to act in that we can count on evolution to, you know, make us understand that you, 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 you move away from ammonia. I mean, (laughs) it's, if we don't have that time. And so the people who recognize this problem, one of the conclusions that I came to was we are able to change what's rewarding. And for what the evidence is for that, I looked into the data on other difficult behavior changes. And one of the best examples is addiction. I mean, addiction is notoriously hard. So what has worked best in the context of addiction? Well, the drug is rewarding and you can't, you'd get nowhere by saying don't use drugs. That that does nothing. But what does work best is substituting different rewards for the rewards that you're giving up. So what works best, I mean, everyone's heard of the 12-step programs. You know, what you're substituting are some other powerful rewards. Like one of the most powerful is social rewards. So other people in the battle with you, giving you you know constant encouragement, telling you when you're doing a good job, being loving and being on the same page, uh, is extraordinarily valuable. And in some in some studies, that's what works the best. That has been shown to work in other difficult behavioral contexts, education, overeating, uh, and um, other kinds of behavioral addictions like, shopping addiction, for example. And when you put that in the environmental context, I also looked at what has been studied about what works best to change people's behavior in a pro-environmental direction. Well, the first step is to know which of your behaviors are bad in terms of meeting the goal and which aren't. And oftentimes, people understand there's an environmental crisis, but they really don't know which of their own behaviors uh, are the ones that add the most problem. And if you're the director of a company or middle management, like changing to a pro-environmental agenda may not get you promoted. People might look at you funny. So we have to understand that the kind of behavior changes we need are simply not very rewarding by just the way that our evolution doesn't make them very rewarding, and they suffer from the immediacy problem that we talked about. They suffer from the problem of what we call agency. When you're the one that kicks that soccer ball into the net, you know you did it. When you're when you bike to walk, bike to work because it's good for the environment, you do not see any immediate effect of that. Never mind immediate. Even if you could see it, it's so distant and and amorphous that you can't feel the effect of most pro-environmental behavior. So first you need to know which of the behaviors that matter the most in your life, and you can do what's called a carbon calculator to figure out where are your big ones and focus on them. A lot of people focus on things like recycling. That's helpful, but there are probably in most people's lives other things that have a bigger impact. So that's what is that? That's homework. Who wants to do homework? I'm not going to get anything out of it. If I do homework about I'm going to buy a new, oh, I don't know, car, It's fun. I'm going to get a new car at the end of it. If you do homework like how can you reduce your carbon footprint, that is a chore. There's nothing fun about that. And that's not because you're a bad person. That's because your brain doesn't know that this should be anything that's important to your survival. It it hasn't figured that out and may never. So for people who actually care about this, A, you have to buckle down and do homework, which, you know, but B... You have to get your reward, recognize your rewards are not going to be like kicking that ball into the soccer net. They're just not going to feel on a gut check level the same, but you got to substitute other rewards. And what are the other rewards? The biggest one that works in climate change action is social. So finding like-minded people that will reinforce you, who get it, who believe what you believe and working together. And this is the strategy that has worked in Good, successful environmental movements like um, eco teams in Europe. Mothers Out Front is an example I talk about, which is a Boston begun, um, you know, parent network. Uh, their motivation is the children's future. And what do they get? They get social rewards, but they also get a lot of learning about the problem, but also how to network, how to um, take political action, how to solve problems that are in their community that are visible. So it helps some of that agency deficit that a lot of pro-environmental behavior has. So these successful pro-environmental movements have substituted for the reward of having the biggest SUV on the road that you could just crush any other car with, substituting that for other kinds of rewards that are social largely social Um, and sometimes other things you know uh, the reward of like worrying about your kids future and doing something about it that's pretty rewarding so it's substitution of other rewards and recognizing that the reward value of these other rewards is pretty good but you're still probably gonna give something up uh, and that's a choice you have to make with your cognition so for people who are predisposed to environmentalism that's what has worked the best For people who are not, and in fact may be skeptical, um, the issue sometimes is that we have to find ways to motivate them by aligning the things that we know are rewarding with pro-environmental behavior. So a good example is a Tesla. People may get it because it's cool and because it's high performance. They may not get it because it's pro-environmental.
3: So the the conclusion of your book, um, I think has a very interesting title. you talk about a sustainable brain, and it, it made me think that we tend to—and you, you discussed this in, in your previous answers—I uh, think we tend to see in a very arrogant way, uh, um, as a you know, as a species, uh, to view the human brain as this perfect machine that was put together and in some way that help us. Um, Go beyond the cap- the capacities of other animals, and in this sense, put us above other life forms on, on this planet. Or at least, when we talk about the evolution of humanity, we usually think of the brain as holding this uh, very um, uh, this primary importance. Uh, so, talking about a sustainable brain really supposes to shift that conversation. I think it forces you think in more humble terms, but m- most importantly, in more nuanced terms. Uh, so. Could you explain to us what you mean by a sustainable brain and how, what are our best chance to, to, to attain it?
0: You know, that's um, a perspective you get in neuroscience where it's such a shock. The first time you learn that your vision is not like a camera, that what you see as a human is engineered for what you needed to see to optimally survive and that other organisms have visual apparatuses that are totally different. They see different things. They perceive different things. It's the same sort of thing as your dog and your dog whistle. You know, they can hear things you can't hear. And when you first learn about this, you think, wait a minute. Somebody can do something better than I can? (laughs) Like, I can't see as well as an eagle? Why is that? But there are reasons for all of these things, and they were selected for you know, that's the whole principle of evolution, that things were selected for gradually, gradually, gradually improved on. And likewise, um, the human brain is not the ultimate computer at the, you know, in, in perfection, the human brain is extraordinary. And I mean, nobody has more awe of it than a neurosurgeon, but, um, it is what it is for reasons, and it does what it does for reasons. And, and the premise of the book is right now the reasons that it had for ending up the way it did are not the reasons that we're facing a crisis right now. They're not, well, they're the, they're the cause, but they, they, it is not well adapted to the solution. So when I use the term sustainable brain, It builds on the fact that the brain is, and I go through this in a fair amount of detail, um, a malleable system. And you know this from your own life. The things that you care about, the things you value, um, change throughout your life. And they change not just because you're older, but they change because of things you've experienced, lessons you've learned, people you've talked to your your business, books you've read, uh, everything that you encounter changes, literally changes your brain. And therefore, your brain is an evolving, interactive, iterative system. And for this reason, it is not hopeless to say we have some kind of human nature and, it, and, and it's hardwired and that's all there is. It's in our genes. We're never going to change. And so the concept of a sustainable brain is to some extent something that we have to give ourselves to solve this crisis we can't use our gut check that came from the evolution of surviving because wolves were coming into your into your cave i mean you can't use those lessons for this crisis you have to recognize that you have to give yourself intellectual rewards and social rewards. You have to actually construct them. You have to take an active role. So if this is something you care about, you have to realize that doing the homework to see what is your impact. If you are the boss of an organization, you have to realize cognitively that making pro-environmental decisions may not get your board of directors to think you're terrific because it might take a crimp out of your budget. You might have to be creative to find ways that it will actually align with your mission of your organization. You're going to have to make tough choices. You're going to have to be creative. You're going to have to be clever if you care about this. That's your sustainable brain. You can't count on the old formulas. You can't count on pro-environmental choices. Feeling the same as you're used to things feeling that are rewarding in the conventional, classic evolutionary sense Um, It's not to say that every pro-environmental behavior choice is not rewarding. It's rewarding because you say, wow, I did the right thing. There, There is reward in that. But it isn't the same as a really good steak dinner. It's a different kind of reward. It's a social reward. It's a cognitive reward. And your best bet for staying at it is bonding with other people who feel similarly. And that's true for these social movements, you know, extinction, rebellion, sunrise movements, many of these that are youth led movements. What do they get out of it? They have a common purpose and they have social reward. So the final thing to point out is that one of the things I delved into out of my own curiosity was the difference between reward and happiness. And it turns out that reward is short term and immediate and, um, I mean, we, as I said, we can, uh, we we are able to have some delayed gratification and some delayed reward, and have a vision in mind of something we want to accomplish. We are able to do that. If we if we couldn't do that, you wouldn't be able to get through med school. But um, in addition, people have done studies of what gives people long-term happiness, and it is not the same as short-term reward. What gives people long-term life satisfaction is a sense of purpose. And their social relationships, meaningful relationships. Those are the big two. There are others, but those are the big two. So I think I say somewhere in the book that when reward and happiness uh, compete, money wins the reward prize, but purpose, a sense of purpose, and relationships win the happiness reward and happiness prize. And they're really quite different. So. One of the questions we have to ask ourselves to create our own sustainable brains uh, is, do we care about reward or do we care about long term life satisfaction and happiness? Because there are different ways to get there. And sometimes you have to give up the short term reward to get that long term happiness, which is what most of us say we care about. But it's not going to be easy. One final thing that's going to make it difficult is that the environmental crisis and climate change is without a doubt, going to get worse before it gets better. So anything you do is going to feel hopeless and useless and pointless, and you didn't accomplish anything because it's going to get worse. And you have to override that with your knowledge and your cognition and your belief and understanding in science and the the right motivations of science, and use that to not get discouraged. Because a lot of pro-environmental behavior choices are exercises in low reward, a lot of frustration, and lack of agency, and just a sense that it's purposeless. And you have to override that with what you know to um, make it rewarding internally and with other people. That's the way to get to the sustainable brain. And we have to do it because if we don't, uh, we are not we are not going to be able to persist in the same way.
3: I really appreciate the honesty uh, that that, that you're showing, and, and, but also in, in the book, uh, in the sense that it's gonna be difficult, but I think what great attribute of the book is that um, at least it gives us a reason as to why it is difficult. Uh, it, it, so this way we don't have anymore this feeling that we are hitting a brick wall uh, or just leading some sort of absurd uh, quests in uh, solving the environmental crisis, but we are just in a way battling with our own evolutionary uh, journey. Uh, and, and, and we're continuing on that journey. So um, so I, I think in this regard, you use the word um, override, uh, using our knowledge or you know, our, um, everything that we know about the environmental crisis to override this, um, this sense of despair or maybe the sense of difficulty in front of the solutions to take. I think the book, your book, is, is an element of that override or at least tries to um, help us override by adding that neuroscientific uh, uh, perspective uh, into the mix. Um, and so one final question I have is uh, to maybe, you know, continue on this, this, this journey. We went from the, the problem, the diagnosis, up to uh, maybe what are the best solutions or the best uh, path to take. Uh, what is um, What are you and maybe your colleagues also involved at this intersection between environmental sciences and neuroscience uh, currently looking forward to, um, what are the next steps maybe at this uh, at this junction of scientific fields?
0: Yeah, I think um, one of the things I'm interested in knowing is this is interdisciplinary work by definition, and I'm interested in knowing if we can frame uh, the choices in line with what we evolve to find rewarding, does that increase the chances that people can make pro-environmental behavior, number one? And number two, can we tap into in people who are motivated because of their concern about this process, uh, this this crisis, can we tap into the knowledge that the rewards are not going to feel the same, that you have to use, as you say, override, that you have to use social rewards? Can we play on that? Can we accept that? And can that accelerate our ability to take appropriate action? So I think the next question is, You know, if if all of that, if all that I've, you know, kind of linked together here is true, does that, in fact, help us change? And we don't know the answer to that yet. I'd like to think so. But to really do it scientifically, you'd have to actually test it and study it. And that would be of great interest.
3: I see. Well, thank you so much, uh, Doctor, for, uh, for your time uh, in explaining uh, your book and uh, making us discovering it more and also discovering this, once again, this very interesting uh, multidisciplinary approach to the environmental crisis and how neuroscience can, uh, can, can help us uh, face that, uh, that, that, that problem and hopefully invent new solutions uh, for ourselves. Uh, thank you again for your time.
0: Thank you so much for understanding it because it's not easy, but I appreciate that you took the time to uh, to get through it. Thank you.
3: Let me say that you made it much easier. <laughs> Thank you so much.
1: It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win?